The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the 5th chapter and the 17th verse. The 17th verse in the 5th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were certain Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal. Or as we have it here, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, I call your attention to this verse this evening because it seems to me that it epitomizes in a very remarkable manner what is, after all, the great and the central theme, not only of these four Gospels, but also of the entire New Testament, and indeed of the whole Bible. It's a good thing, I think, at times, to take a general view of these things. There is constantly the danger, and especially for those of us who constantly meet together to consider God's word and its message, there is the constant danger, I say, of our missing the wood because of the trees. The danger of being so preoccupied with particular matters and questions that we may very well miss the great and the grand thing itself. And this, of course, equally applies to those who are not Christians. Because, as I want to try to show you this evening, there are many who are in that position simply because in their preoccupation with the minor matters, they have missed the great and the central thing itself. Now, if you take a broad view of the Gospels, if you take a general look at their message, you will see very clearly that what they really are concerned to do is this. They are concerned to present to us the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they do so in this most interesting and important manner. They show us his person in terms of the reaction of different people and different kinds of people to him. The business of the four Gospels is, I say, to depict him. They show us his person. They tell us about his birth, about his coming. They show us something of his development. But the great message is, after all, the way in which at the age of 30, he began in a great public ministry. He began to preach. He began to work miracles, and people followed him. And the bulk of the space is given, as you realize, to an account of that. The person, his words, his work, and then finally his extraordinary death. And then that amazing thing that followed, the resurrection. Now they present all that to us. But at the same time, I say, they present to us the effect that all this had upon the people amongst whom he lived and amongst whom he walked and worked. 
And they're very careful to give us both sides. They show us that to some people he meant everything. Here's a man, for instance, like the man Levi, of whom we read in the reading at the beginning. There he was sitting at the receipt of customs. And our Lord came to him and said, follow me. And at once he rose up and left all and followed him. There seems to have been no difficulty at all. Ah, yes, but there were others who didn't respond and didn't react in that way. They reacted in a very different way. And here you seem to be getting them presented to you alternately. For instance, you see, we started off our reading tonight by these with these words. It came to pass, when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. But I've never read of a Pharisee falling on his face before him. It's rather the reverse, isn't it? Here you see you get these things intermingled. And that is the amazing thing about these records. That though all these people are looking at the same person, they're hearing the same words, they're observing the same miracles, they don't respond in the same way. The reaction is not identical. He means all to some, but he seems to be a problem to others. And they're troubled by him. And indeed, they go so far even as to hate him, and finally to reject him, and to bring about his death in that most cruel manner of crucifixion. Now, I say that these Gospels hold us face to face with something like that. And that, according to these records, is Christianity. That is the message of the Christian faith and of the Christian church. You see, we, we are not concerned primarily about a point of view, nor a teaching even. The great thing here is this person. And we are confronted by him. The whole thing is historical. Christianity is not a philosophy. In that sense, it's not even a religion. And it differs from all the so-called great religions of the world in that sense. It is not a religion primarily. It is fundamentally a message about this person. It all depends upon him. It all centers upon him. It tells us certain facts about him. If they are true, well, then there are certain consequences. If they are not true, there are other consequences. So the great thing is our reaction to him. For uh, the New Testament tells us this, and this is its message that it is our relationship to this person that decides and determines our eternal destiny. This book doesn't hesitate to assert that this person matters to us more than anything and everything else in this world put together. This book asserts that this person is the only one who can reconcile us to God. He is the only one who can procure for us forgiveness of sins. He is the only one who can deliver us from condemnation, from the wrath of God, from hell and eternal perdition. Now that's its claim. I don't think anybody can dispute that. You may not agree with it, you may not accept it, but that at any rate is the message. That this person, 
This person who's held before us here in these Gospels, this is the one who determines our will or our woe, not only in time, but also in eternity. And it confronts us, therefore, with this astonishing fact. Here he is, depicted as a person full of gentleness, the one of whom it is said that the bruised reed, he will not break in the smoking flax, he will not quench, one who went about doing good, one who delighted in relieving suffering and need, one who was never happier, as it were, than when he was healing the sick, and one from whose lips gracious words constantly poured. You would have thought at first sight, and looking at things superficially, that there could have been only one reaction to such a person. But the fact of the matter is, as I'm reminding you, that that was not the case. That though it sounds incredible, there were people who disliked him and who hated him, and who eventually encompassed his death. Now, this is something, therefore, that surely demands our most serious attention. In a few weeks, the Christian church will be thinking again of his death on Calvary's hill, of his burial, and of his rising again from the dead. The fact is that when he came into the world, he was rejected, he was despised and rejected of men, and he was crucified and killed. And the question is, why was that? What was it that led to that? What was the cause of that? Now, in the light of what I've just been saying about the consequences of that, surely this is the most vital and important question we can ever consider together. Let me therefore put it bluntly at this moment in the form of a question. What is your reaction to this person? This person who's put before you in the Gospels, this person of whom you've heard many a time in sermons and in addresses. What's your reaction to him? What's been your response to him? You see, there are only two major responses here and only two major responses are possible. Uh, one either is like uh, the uh, leper uh, and uh, the men who suffered from the palsy and his friends, uh, whom you remember, uh, of whom we are told that they were so anxious to see him and to come near to him and to be blessed by him that they even went up on top of the roof and pulled off some tiles and let him down before him. We are either like that and like Levi who gets up, leaves everything and goes after him, or else we are like these other people, these Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law, of whom we read in this chapter and elsewhere, alas, in the pages of the four Gospels. Now, I, I say that this is an urgent question. There is no more urgent question. And there is no need for me to press the urgency at the present time. The very state of the world is pressing it. My dear friends, if what the newspapers hint at is true, and if we are sitting, as it were, on the edge of a volcano as we seem to be, with life as uncertain as it is today, there is nothing, I say, that is more important than this. Do you know this is infinitely more important than the question of whether there's to be another war? It's altogether more important than the question of the hydrogen bomb. 
Because here, you see, we are dealing with the consequences of that sort of thing. If that kind of thing is going to happen, well, it's going to happen to us. And we go from time into eternity, from life into death and beyond. And the great question is, what happens then? Where are we going? Well, now, here, according to this message, is the thing that decides that. Our relationship to this person. So it is absolutely crucial and central. If, therefore, you want to know for certain what your eternal destiny is going to be, if you are logical and you say to yourself, well, I am very concerned about the state of the world at this moment. I, I, I read these philosophers and statesmen and others uh, hinting at dread possibilities and beginning to talk about a conceivable end of the world and of civilization in this year unless something happens and brings sanity in the Far Eastern situation. Hearing that and saying, well, I'm acutely, therefore, face to face with this fact of death and my own eternal future. Therefore, I cannot afford to be uh, without certainty with respect to this matter. I, I must know what's going to happen to me. I can't afford to take a risk. I don't come back again into this world. I'm only in it once, and here I may be going out of it at any moment. Well, now, where am I going? What's going to happen to me? If this decides my eternal future, there's nothing more important than this. And as I say, it all comes to this one question. My attitude towards this person. Now I say it's going to be one of two. Either he's all to me and I go after him, or else I'm like these Pharisees and scribes, these doctors of the law. I want to call your attention to them, therefore. These people who rejected him. These people who plotted his death. These people who didn't rest until, as they thought, they'd got him out of the way and got him out of their history and out of their circumstances. Oh, it's the greatest tragedy in the New Testament. It's the tragedy of the world. That these men, of all men, should have behaved like this and reacted in that manner. The Pharisees, because, after all, they were the religious leaders. They were the teachers of the people. They were the doctors of the law. They were the men who separated themselves in an attempt to be holy and to live a life that glorifies God. And yet, as I say, it was they of all people who turned against him and persecuted him and incited the mob to cry away with him, crucify him, and who demanded a robber instead of him to be released by the authorities. Now I say the question is, what made these men do this? And I'm calling attention to it, obviously, as I've already indicated. Oh, not because you and I may have the pleasure and the enjoyment of making a kind of psychological analysis of the Pharisees. My dear friends, the times are too urgent for that. There is no time for theoretical considerations. We are involved in all this ourselves. I'm holding them before you because I suggest to you that the things which led them to react like that to our blessed Lord are still the things that stand between people and knowing the amazing blessings that he came into this world to bring us. I ask again, which of the two positions are you in? Are you like this leper? 
Are you like the paralytic man and his friends? Are you like Levi? Is Jesus Christ to you the center of your life, the savior of your soul, the one who even enables you to face the end of all things calmly because you have a certainty of what lies beyond? Is he like that to you? Or are you uncertain about him? Or does he mean nothing to you? Or perhaps are you even opposed to him and antagonistic to him? Well, I say that there is nothing more serious and more momentous than this. Therefore, therefore let us look at these people and discover, if we can, what it was that led to this tragedy of the rejection of the Savior by the Pharisees. There are certain things I want to note. They're all obvious, I think, on the very surface of the passage. The first thing that explains their tragedy, as it seems to me, is that they never came out of the position of being onlookers. And it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, sitting by, uh, which uh, were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal. Now, I've already put this to you. Let me put it in a word again. There are only two ultimate attitudes possible towards our Lord. It is either this attitude of sitting by... Or else it is the attitude of this man full of leprosy who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face. Or the attitude of the paralytic and his friends who said, we must get at him. They came to the house, you remember, and there was such a crowd there they couldn't get in. But they're not put away by that. They, they didn't go home and say, oh, well, we'll try tomorrow. Another day will come. I needn't be very urgent about this, not at all. They said, look here, we must see him at all costs. If you won't make way for us, we are getting in another way. They climb up onto the roof. They take off the tiles. They get him in, into his presence. The man was anxious. His friends were anxious. And there are so many other illustrations of the same thing running throughout the pages of the four Gospels. But the Pharisees, they simply are to be found sitting by. Now, this is an attitude. It's a very common and very well-recognized attitude. Let me try and elaborate it by putting it like this. Of course, they were interested in a sense. That's why they were there. They'd come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Why? Well, they'd heard about him. They'd heard rumors concerning him. And uh, they were obviously interested. They were attracted in a point, as we say today. They were intrigued. And uh, they wanted to find out something about this. Oh, yes, they were no doubt interested. Yes, but they were interested in a detached manner. They're interested in a theoretical manner. Uh, to them, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was just a subject and an object of, uh, of uh, study and of interest. They said, what is this? There was a good deal of rumor going round and a good deal of commotion. And they said, well, we'd better go and see for ourselves. We must examine this and investigate this. So they came and 
Of course, they, they, they don't come as a leper comes to him. They come and they just sit back. They're going to look on. They're, they're standing apart. They keep themselves out of the influence, as it were. Oh, you mustn't do that. You mustn't go under the influence. You never know what may happen to you. You maintain a detachment. You hold yourself back deliberately. And if you begin to feel anything, especially, uh, you, you put up your barrier. You don't let yourself come under this thing because you never know what it may lead to, as I say. Now, that's their attitude. The detached, dilettante attitude. Oh, religion, of course, it's, it's a very interesting subject. It's a very interesting teaching. Of course, it's one of the possible ways of looking at life. I'm putting it now in its modern garb and in its modern form. There are so many like that today who are tremendously interested, they tell us, in religion and in Christianity. They're very fond of reading about it. They'll listen to lectures about it. They may go to services for that reason. They're interested in phenomena. There are many people who are interested in the phenomena of religion. They're interested in any sort of experience. They say life, after all, is difficult and trying. And anything that offers any kind of solution is worthy of our attention and of our consideration. They say that, in general, they are concerned in this way about the improvement of the lot of mankind and perhaps the improvement of their own lot. So they're very ready indeed to listen to and to pay attention to anything that can offer some kind of help. And religion does that, they say. So they come and look at it, and they say, no, it's tremendously interesting. There are some people whose lives seem to be changed entirely by this sort of thing. It's very remarkable. Of course, it's very good. They generally seem to be better afterwards than they were before. Well, of course, that uh, happens to some as the result of religion. Music does it for others, and art will do it for others, and literature does it for others, or uh, a careful study of philosophy perhaps will do it for others. And so you come and... You just look at this marvelous, interesting phenomenon of conversion and of a changed life as the result of the gospel, and it's a matter of supreme interest. There are large numbers of people like that at the present time, or they're interested perhaps in points of philosophy and of understanding. They say there's nothing more entrancing than to look at these varied views, these different views. The philosophers, after all, they say, have made a very great contribution. And there is no doubt at all but that Jesus of Nazareth stands out as one of the great teachers of all time. So they bring out their lists, you see, of Confucius, Buddha, Jesus, and so on. He's just one of them, and they listen to him, and it's, it's all very entrancing and very interesting. And so you may remain in this detached position, looking on at it with a kind of philosophic calm and detachment. You may become a member even of a, a society uh, of Christians and Jews or a society of world religions just to see what contribution these different religions have to make. It's so helpful from the standpoint of life and the future of mankind. This religion has its contribution, that has its contribution, so we will be interested in, in them all. The kind of man who says, you know, oh, of course the trouble with you Christians is you say that yours alone is right. I'm more eclectic, says the men. I believe in a sort of syncretism. 
I believe that everything throws a certain amount of light on this. I'm not going to say that Buddhism is wrong or Mohammedanism or Confucianism. Why should one be right and all the others wrong? After all, they're great religions and they've lasted a long time. You know, they say it's very important that you shouldn't become too zealous. You shouldn't become zealots. You must learn to preserve this philosophic detachment, this calmness of the onlooker who rightly can evaluate. You mustn't be moved. You mustn't become enthusiastic. You must beware lest your feelings will carry you away. The hallmark of the true is an absence of feelings, a philosophic calm. Sitting by. The result is, you see, that there are large numbers of people in the world tonight who are and who have been perhaps for years very interested in Jesus of Nazareth. Very interested in his teaching and in his life, in his person. Very interested in the phenomena that his teaching and person have produced. And yet never in their lives have they been prostrate before him. Never in their lives have they said, thank God for him. Never in their lives have they left all and gone up and followed him. They've never known that. They've always been sitting by. There's always been a respectable distance between this person and themselves. They've never really felt his power. They've never known the thing that he came into the world to live. They're looking on. They're spectators. They're simply sitting by. It was the fatal thing, I think, about the Pharisees. That they felt that they must insist upon that. Their dignity, their position, and various other things they thought demanded this. So they must remain and look on, as it were, while lepers and publicans and harlots and others went crowding into the kingdom. They remain outside. They're simply sitting by still. But there's another element, I think, in their case, and a very important one. Isn't it very clear as you read the various accounts of them in the Gospels? that they were also prejudiced, prejudiced. And it comes out so clearly in every record of them. Now, to be prejudiced means that you've prejudged an issue. It means that you've not only made up your mind beforehand, but that you are controlled by something that has made up your mind for you. We are victims of prejudices. You don't take up a prejudice, the prejudice takes you up. And it holds you in a grip that is as tight as a vice. And you can't move, and it absolutely holds you. You may think that you're absolutely free, but you're a victim of the prejudice. Now, I want to try to show you that these Pharisees were victims of prejudices. And it was because of the prejudices that they simply sat by always instead of falling at his feet. Now, the prejudice comes out in a very interesting manner. I would divide it like this, that they were prejudiced in spirit and prejudiced in practice. In their spirits, they show their prejudice, I think, with what I am constrained to call a kind of professional attitude towards our Lord. There was something about him that always disturbed them at the very beginning. They said, who is this fellow? What I mean by that is this. Uh, it troubled them to, to find that this man has learning, uh, never having learned. He seems to come breaking into it all. 
He doesn't do things as they felt they should be done. There was a kind of professional reaction against him. I think as you read these accounts, you see it coming out quite clearly. They'd got a set order, a set ritual. They were, after all, the teachers of the people. They were the ones to whom all the people looked up. They were the doctors of the law and the experts. But here is somebody who comes along and speaks with authority and says, you have heard that it has been said, but I say. And they say, who is this? What does this mean? Who's this man that comes crashing into our system? This thing is wrong, they say. A professional prejudice against him. It comes out in another way in their spirit, I think, when we see so clearly how ready they were and how eager indeed they were always to find fault with him and to criticize him. Read these Gospels right through and keep your eye on that, and I, I think it will amaze you and astound you. How they are forever taking him up on points, uh, trying to trip him and to catch him in his talk and in his conversation, waiting for him to make some false move, even providing a trap for him in order that he may commit himself in what they regard as a false way. Now, all that is indicative of a prejudiced attitude. And again, I'm reminding you that I'm calling your attention to this. Oh, not because I've got a theoretical detached interest in the Pharisee. That would be to be to put ourselves into the same foolish position as the Pharisees. I say I'm calling attention to this because I am convinced it is the thing that stands between so many and a living knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Redeemer. You know, my friends, it's our primary fundamental attitude towards him that spoils everything. How often have we all, probably at some time or another in our lives, come face to face with him in a service, or while his salvation has been preached, and we came the whole time determined to turn it down. We, we really never gave it a chance or an opportunity. We had always argued against it outside and some friend may have said to us, come to a service. All right, we say, we'll come. Yes, but we've come to the service with one idea only, and that is that we're going to find the faults and the blemishes and the loopholes. We've come to turn it down, not really to listen and to submit ourselves to it, but to find the flaws and the errors and the fallacies and to be able to say, rubbish, that's nonsense. I'm not romancing, am I? Oh, I'm talking to those who may not have known this gospel in its power hitherto and who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. May I humbly ask this question? Have you ever given him a chance? Or have you just been waiting and seeking for opportunities to turn him down? Look at it in the, in the Pharisees. And that is why we should thank God for these records. It's so much easier to see these things in somebody else than in ourselves, isn't it? You see, we're all like King David of Israel, aren't we? You remember David had committed a foul and a terrible sin. It was a double sin. He was guilty of adultery and then murder. And you remember a prophet Nathan went to him and told him a story. And told him of a great injustice that had been done by one person to another. And David was roused with righteous indignation. He said, look here, the man who has done that must be punished severely. There's no excuse for that sort of thing. He saw it clearly. 
And then Nathan looked at him and said, Thou art the man. He said, I've simply been describing yourself to you in the form of a picture. That's precisely what you yourself have done. Yes, you see, David can see it in a picture. He can't see it in himself. Now I say, the Gospels have been provided for us. And I believe that these details are given us about the Pharisees in order that we may recognize their warning. They are fingerposts, in a sense, saying this. That's the way to hell. That's the way to perdition and to loss. Avoid it at all costs. Well, now then, that's the thing, you see, that made them go that way. They were prejudiced in their spirits against him. They never gave him a chance. They were always on the lookout for that to turn down and to destroy and to criticize and to reject. They also did it in practice. You notice how they measure everything that he says and everything that he does by their own ideas and by their own set and rigid opinions. You see, our Lord healed somebody on a Sunday. Now, the effect of that upon the Pharisees was to say this, who is this fellow who breaks the Sabbath? Our Lord takes his seat with publicans and sinners in order that he might help them and save them and redeem them. They say, what right is a man who claims to be a teacher sent from God to sit with people like this? You notice that they seem constantly to be missing the big thing and constantly they fix upon some little detail in which he doesn't conform to their teaching and to their practice. They measured everything in practice according to their own ideas. They never saw that this was something altogether bigger. In other words, like all who have prejudices, the blinkers that were upon them prevented their seeing. They were confined and rigid, and thus they missed the glory. What a terrible thing prejudice is. It is the thing, I say, that shuts the heart and shuts the mind. Oh, my dear friend, in the context of the present situation... May I ask you this question? Have you ever really given the Lord Jesus Christ in this message concerning him an opportunity of speaking to you? Have you ever, as it were, come to it and said, Well, now then, I'll lay aside for the time being everything I've ever thought and everything I've ever said. I'm really going to try to come to this as near as I can with a virgin, with an open mind. I'm not going to read it any longer in order to be able to pull it to pieces and to cut it down and to show that it contradicts itself or that it's impossible and that it doesn't conform to modern scientific teaching, all this talk about miracles and so on. I'm going to stop all that. I'm going to let it speak to me for once. I'm going to let it come out of the word to me. I'm not going to impose myself upon it. Have you ever done that? As you value your immortal soul, I plead with you to do so. The Pharisees never did it. Never. With their system, they came to it in order to destroy it and to tear it to pieces and to reject it. And that is why they go out in their final tragedy. 
And that is why this blessed person, who even gave his life for sinners, pronounced his woes upon them. It is the thing, in a sense, that finally shuts a man out. But come, let me go to the next thing which I but notice. In a sense, all I've been saying just leads up to this. The trouble with the Pharisees finally was that they failed to face the evidence as it was there, staring them in the face. They wouldn't face the facts that were before their eyes. And thus it was that they never recognized him. Take this particular instance that is given as one each side of this particular verse that we're looking at this evening. You see, these Pharisees actually saw him doing these things. They saw him healing lepers. They couldn't do it. They saw what he did to this man with the palsy. They couldn't do it. They saw him even raising the dead. The son of the widow of Nain, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. There was no question about the facts because they were eyewitnesses themselves. They were there. They were looking at him. They were looking into his face. They were looking into those eyes of God. They saw his compassion and his love. They heard him speaking with all this amazing authority, though he was but a carpenter and had never been to any one of the schools of the Pharisees. They couldn't dismiss it. They couldn't deny it. He spoke with authority. He knew his scriptures. He had his interpretation. He knew the law. They heard it all. And I say they saw these most astounding works. But this is the truth about them, isn't it? They looked at them, but they didn't see them. Or if you prefer it, they saw them, but they didn't perceive them. You see, there's all the difference in the world between looking at something and really seeing what you're looking at. Now the tragedy of the Pharisees is that they looked, but they never saw. It's almost beyond comprehension, isn't it? It's so extraordinary that it's almost staggering. That men could stand by and look on and see him and see what he did and heard what he said and still were only concerned to try and trip him and trap him upon some minutian details and are always raising their objections. Surely we would have said to ourselves, we would have thought, when men come face to face with facts like that, they'd say, well, whether I understand it or not, I've got to admit that I've never met anybody like this before. I've never seen anything like this before. I don't understand him. He doesn't conform to the rules. But in the name of God, here is something that no man has ever seen before and no one can understand. Who are you? What are you? But they didn't do that. You see, we are told that actually on this occasion of the healing of the paralytic, they were all amazed and glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. But it didn't last very long, because immediately after these things he went forth and called Levi the publican, who made a feast. And when they saw him sitting down with the company, back came the criticisms. They'd forgotten the amazement. 
They had forgotten that they had been filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Momentarily, they were dazzled, as it were. But it was only flashing and passing. And back they revert to their criticism and to their censoriousness and to all their questioning and all their attempts to discredit him. But isn't there something that is still true? It's almost incredible, but it's because we know it's a fact that I'm calling attention to these things. The fact of Christ is still there facing mankind. We are not preaching cunningly as devised fables. Christianity is a fact. That's why you call this year 1955. It dates from him. He comes into secular history. You can't get away from him. Jesus of Nazareth is a fact. There would never have been a Christian church if he isn't a fact. If his life isn't a fact, if his death isn't a fact, if his resurrection isn't a fact, there would never have been such a thing as a church. We wouldn't be seated in this building at this moment. Here's a fact. And here are all these facts about him. What have you made of the facts, my friends? If you say you're not a Christian and you can't believe these things, well, tell me, what do you make of the facts? How can you get rid of him? How can you explain him? There is no category that is adequate to him except that to say that he must be the Son of God. The Pharisees felt it in their bones, as it were, on this occasion when they glorified God and said, we have seen strange things today, but why didn't they follow it on then? Why didn't they remind themselves of it next day? Why didn't they constantly remind themselves of it and say, we can't explain him. He must be what he says. But they didn't. They were so blinded by their prejudices that they really didn't see the things that were staring them in the face. And I say that the position is still unaltered. The fact of Christ remains. The fact of the Christian church. The long story coming down the centuries, it's there. And you've got to explain it away, my friend, satisfactorily. You can't do it by waving a hand. You can't do it by standing with your hands in your pockets and saying Christianity is played out. You've got to explain it all. You've got to explain the saints. The noblest men who ever trod the face of this earth. The men who, like Levi, have risen up and have left all in order to serve Christ and through him to serve humanity. The men who brought the care of the poor and healing of the sick and hospitals and teaching and education and every one of these things to men when the state was doing nothing about it. Men gripped by him and adoring and worshipping him are the men who've done all these things. Can you dismiss them all and explain them away? That's what the Pharisees did. They were aware of the facts, but they didn't see them. Oh, I say, you've got to explain these things and understand them. And the contemporary facts. Men and women who still come under his influence and power and are redeemed and changed by him and given a joy unspeakable and full of glory. These are the facts. But the tragedy of the Pharisee was that though he looked, 
he didn't see. Here was the Son of God before them. In all the fullness of his divinity. Here he is, I say, in their very presence. But they don't see him. Had they seen him, you see, for me to close, their conduct would have been very different. So my last point is this. It was their failure to submit themselves to him that finally accounts for their tragedy. It was because of this difference between them and the leper. Who, looking at his skin and his festering sores and perhaps parts of his joints and fingers falling off, knowing that no man can help him and nothing can be done for him, he's heard of him and he says, let me get at him. If only I can get at him, I know that if he wills it, he's got the power to heal me and to cleanse me and to deliver me from the running sore of my life. Let me get to him. Or like the man was paralyzed and his friends had gone to visit him. And he said, have you heard of this new teacher called Jesus of Nazareth? You know, he said, I'm convinced if I could only get near him, he'd put me right. From what I hear of him, I'm certain he could heal me. I don't want to sit on the outskirts of the crowd and listen to him. Take me to him. I want to see him. I want to feel the touch of his power. I know he can do it. Get me there. And they got him there through the roof and the tiles. And so with all the others. The woman who lived a life of sin, who just fell at his feet and washed them with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, content only that she could touch him and handle even his feet. But oh, the Pharisees never did that. They never fell before him. They never fell before him because they never felt their need of him. It was because they'd never seen themselves as enemies and aliens from God. It was because they'd never seen themselves as bound for hell and for perdition that they never saw their need of him. And so they sat by and looked on interested, critical, ready to tear to pieces and to turn down. If only they had known the truth about themselves. They, like the leper and the paralytic, would have insisted upon getting near to him. They wouldn't have taken the detached position. They would have gone to him and they would have said, Jesus of Nazareth, we don't understand you. There are things about you that we don't like. We don't understand your claims. We don't understand your teaching. We don't see how you do it. But we do recognize the facts. We are seeing what you're doing. We are recognizing these things. They're no ordinary things. Tell us what it is. Tell us about yourself. We've come to learn. Open your doctrine to us. We'll sit down at your feet. You shall be the teacher. Anything only that we'll understand and know who you are and what you're doing. If only they'd done that. How different the story would have been. He would never have pronounced his woes of hopelessness upon them. That's the final thing. 
You may have intellectual difficulties with regard to him. I would not minimize them. There are things that are difficult to understand. But what I am saying is this. Don't be governed and controlled by them. Don't allow details and minutiae to rob you. For a moment, leave them, forget them. Confront him. And in accordance with his own word of teaching, become as a little child. Humble and prostrate yourself before him as the leper and say to him, tell me, explain to me, by thy spirit open my eyes and my understanding. I come as a little child. I feel that you're beyond me. I don't know. I don't understand. Like a fool, I've been looking down at you from my supposed elevation of philosophy and of understanding and of psychology. I realize the folly of it all. You're bigger than life. You're bigger than men. You're bigger than the world. Come. I come as a child. Tell me. Reveal to me. Give me an understanding. And I assure you, that if you but do that, he will answer you, he will enlighten you, he will explain to you. If he will do his will, you shall know of the doctrine. I can't imagine a more terrible thing than that men and women who have ever come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ should ever find themselves eternally lost and damned. That's the fate of the Pharisees. It isn't my opinion, it's the Lord's opinion. Though they saw him and all he did, they've gone to perdition for the reasons I've given you. My friend, here is the Son of God who came into this world to rescue you from such a fate. He came to deliver you from the wrath to come. He died that you might be forgiven, might be reconciled to God, might be a child of God. He's come to do all that. I'm confronting you with him and what he's done. What a terrible thing. To spend eternity lost. Because you couldn't quite fit him into your little opinions and understanding. Learn the terrible lesson of the Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law. And prostrate yourself before him. And yield yourself to him. Amen.